This morning in our study of the book of Genesis, we come to chapter 31, verses 17 through 55. We will begin by reading verses 17 through 23. These are the words of God. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions, which he had gained, his acquired livestock, which he had gained in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river, he's talking about the river Euphrates, and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. Our gracious Heavenly Father, open this great word to us this morning by the Holy Spirit. Give us understanding. Show us your ways, your wonders, your wisdom, your will, your word. Lord, and build us up and make us strong and make us glad that we might live to the praise of the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our text this morning is an example of one of the main patterns that we find in Scripture. It's what you might call the Exodus pattern. And in that, we tend to see five main elements. First, God's people travel to a foreign land, which is initially a land of blessing. For example, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, and then if you look forward to the book of Exodus, in both of those places, God's people travel down to Egypt in order to escape famine. And so Egypt is well watered, it is lush, there are grazing lands there. And so at the beginning, Egypt is a land of blessing. In the life of Jacob, he traveled to Haran and to the house of Laban in order to escape danger from Esau, who wanted to kill him, and also to find a wife, as his father Isaac had instructed. So initially, Haran and the house of Laban was a place of blessing. That brings us to the second common element. The foreign land shifts from being a land of blessing to being a land of affliction, and it's always due to an evil ruler. In Genesis chapter 12, Pharaoh takes Sarah to be part of his harem. In the book of Exodus, a new Pharaoh arises who places the people under forced labor and afflicts them, even killing the baby boys. With the story of Jacob, Laban goes from initially embracing Jacob as a member of the family to treating him like a servant and taking repeated advantage of him over a 20-year period. And just to show you the relevance of this Exodus pattern, If we go forward to the New Testament, to the Gospels and the book of Acts in particular, it's going to be the leadership of Israel herself 
that is afflicting the people. We mentioned that in the book of Exodus, the Pharaoh was afflicting the people, even killing the baby Israelite boys and putting very heavy burdens on the people. Well, in the Gospels, who is killing the baby boys of Bethlehem? It's not Caesar in Rome. It's not Pharaoh in Egypt. It's Herod, the king of the Jews supported by passive Jewish high priests and scholars. In the gospel, who does Jesus condemn for placing heavy burdens upon the people? The scribes and the Pharisees. And so what city does the New Testament identify to us as being spiritually Egypt? Jerusalem, the great city which spiritually is called Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Revelations 11, verse 8. Our Lord was not crucified in Cairo. He was not crucified in Rome or Babylon. He was crucified in apostate Jerusalem. And who is it that we see throughout the pages of Acts constantly persecuting the Christians? It's not the Romans. That's not going to happen until sometime later. It's the leadership of the Jews in Jerusalem. And so we see right here a principle. You see how key this exodus pattern is to understanding the New Testament. Indeed, to understanding the times, any times in which we live, it is a key tool because this is a pattern in which God has said to us in Scripture, this is the story. In the Gospel of Luke, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus refers to his upcoming death and resurrection in Jerusalem as what? An exodus. He talked to Moses and Elijah who appeared as his glory was shown. He spoke to them about the exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So we cannot understand what God is doing in Scripture apart from understanding this pattern. So with the Exodus pattern, sometimes Egypt is a separate geographical country to which you travel, which starts out to be a blessing but then ends up to be a land of affliction. And sometimes Egypt is your own land. You haven't traveled anywhere But your own land changes. It changes from being a place of blessing. And it begins to become more and more a land of hostility and affliction. Hello, America. The third element we see in the Exodus pattern is that it's not only the sins of the wicked ruler that are exposed. It's also the sins of God's own people. That are exposed. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham conceals the fact that Sarah is his wife, thus effectively placing her between him and the danger Pharaoh. Rather than doing what he's supposed to do as a husband and place himself between the danger and his wife. And so we see Abraham's weakness and failings. In the book of Exodus, The Israelites are really not much better than the Egyptians in many ways. One scene, there's an Egyptian trying to kill an Israelite, 
And Moses intervenes. The very next scene, it's two Israelites trying to kill one another. And when Moses tries to to separate them and reconcile them, they say, who made you judge over us? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And so Moses has to flee out into the deserts. And when we get to the book of Joshua, Joshua was going to talk about how the worship of Egyptian idols was a very common practice among the Israelites. So it's not just the wickedness of the evil Pharaoh that's exposed. It's also the sins and failings of God's people. With Jacob himself, we've already seen his lack of leadership in passively going along while Rachel and Leah were at war with one another. His failure to to minister by bringing up the experience of his mother, Rebecca, who was barren, his grandmother, Sarah, who was barren, his grandmother, Sarah, who panicked and out of desperation offered her maid to Abraham as another wife, kind of as an ancient form of surrogate motherhood, and just how that backfired, so many unintended consequences. All of these things would have been great to minister to Rachel and Leah when they are at one another's throats. We saw those weaknesses and failings, and of course we saw the weaknesses and failings of Rachel and Leah, because all they cared about during that period of time was winning over one another. The fourth element is that God in mercy delivers his people while plundering the evil ruler. Now that last phrase I did not put in your outlines, but it's important, so write that in. God in mercy delivers his people while plundering the evil ruler. In Genesis 12, God delivers Pharaoh, I mean Sarah from Pharaoh, and then Abraham and Sarah gets them out of Egypt. But during that process, Abraham receives all sorts of livestock and property from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's wealth is largely transferred to Abraham. In the book of Exodus, the people receive all sorts of jewelry and valuable from the Egyptians just before God brings them out of Egypt. And in our text with Jacob, God plunders Laban. By uh, sovereignly transferring to Laban, essentially all the flocks that Laban had unjustly gained off of Jacob's labor and expert management. Notice how in verse 18 it keeps emphasizing all of Jacob's possessions and emphasizing the fact that his livestock and possessions are ones gained by him in Padan Aram, that is, from Laban. And now he was traveling from there back to the promised land, back to Canaan and to his father Isaac. The text is signaling to us there that God is plundering Laban, giving the plunder to Jacob and his household, and bringing them out in an exodus to the promised land. And note how God has caused Laban to fall into the pit that he dug for Jacob. You remember that Laban's final treachery against Jacob was removing all the spotted and speckled from his flocks because those were the ones that were supposed to belong to Jacob. That's all Jacob was going to receive, the spotted and speckled. In other other words, the aberrational animals. They're not very common. 
So as soon as they make that deal, Laban goes out and gets all the spotted and speckled of his flock and moves them three days' journeys away. That's somewhere 60 to 75 miles. He's put some way out there so Jacob has no access to them. This is just Laban all over. But now, in the providence of God, Laban is 60 to 75 miles away shearing his sheep when Jacob flees. And it's going to take three days just for him to get the news that Jacob has left. And then he's going to have to make up all of that time when he's trying to chase Jacob down. So God plundering Laban is the context here, and this is very important to note. It's also the context and the interpretive key for understanding Rachel's theft of Laban's household uh, idols in verse 19. Rachel's motivation, what the text is suggesting to us by the context, her motivation was not idolatry. Her motivation was restitution for Laban's theft of her and Leah's dowry. What did Rachel and Leah say to Jacob just before they fled? Genesis 31:15 Our father has sold us and also completely consumed our money for all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's that helps us understand what is going on with the theft of the idols it's not about worshiping pagan gods for Rachel it's about restitution and items of value The fifth element and the final element is that the evil ruler often pursues God's people in order to exact vengeance. And this results in a final showdown where God defeats the evil ruler with finality. In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh pursues the children of Israel to the Red Sea. But God brings the Israelites across on dry ground while bringing the waters of the sea crashing down on Pharaoh and his army. Here in our text with Jacob, Laban intends to exact vengeance and violence upon Jacob and then to forcibly take Rachel and Leah and all their children back to his place in Haran. We'll see how that is clearly indicated in the text as we go forward. But God is going to intervene to prevent that. So the showdown here is going to be a bit more like a courtroom or a debate, a public debate, where Laban is going to make all sorts of accusations and charges and arguments against Jacob, painting him as a bad guy and painting himself as a good guy and a cha- and as a champion, a righteous champion for those who were afflicted. And we're going to see Jacob responding. Now this brings us back into our text at verses 23 and 25. Here Laban overtakes Jacob in the mountains of Gilead, and they camp there, setting the scene for the showdown. But it turns out that God has already been at work. He's already intervened by appearing to Laban in a dream. Verse 24, But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good or nor bad. 
Now, this language, speak neither good nor bad, that is the language, biblical language, for judging, passing judgment, uh, passing judgment, deciding who is righteous and who is wicked, which is what Laban will be doing if he executes vengeance on Jacob and forcibly takes Rachel and Leah and their children back with him. He will be passing judgment and executing vengeance. So God, by saying, be careful that you speak neither good or evil, what he's saying in so many words is, be careful that you do not lay a hand on Jacob or his household. And this is for sure Laban's understanding as we can see from verse 29, where he tells Jacob, it is in my power to do you harm. Why is he telling him that? Because that's exactly what he intended to do. Why is he not going to do that? Because the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good or bad. God is saying, I am the judge here, not you. And I've already judged in favor of Jacob. That's why he has left you. God told Jacob to leave. Rachel and Leah said, whatever God has told you to do, do it. So Laban has a short leash. But as we will see, he's going to use all the leash he has and even stretch it as much as he can. Laban will do this by using every dirty rhetorical trick he can to paint Jacob as the bad guy and himself as the good guy. He cannot resist fallen man's impulse to justify himself, even when it means condemning the righteous. And of course, the ultimate righteous one is God himself. And as we go along and look at at Laban's rhetoric here, I want to call attention to some of the tricks that he is using because the same tricks are used every single day in our culture here. Look at verse 26. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken by the sword? Now notice, first of all, here's the first rhetorical trick. Notice the faux outrage. So common in our day. And what is that faux outrage that Laban is showing? What does it assume? What does it imply? Well, that Jacob has done something outrageous. He has taken, he basically kidnapped uh, Laban's daughters and grandchildren at the point of a sword and carried them off. Now, one of the important things to notice here about rhetoric in general is this important point. What is assumed is always more powerful than what is stated. What is assumed is always more powerful than what is stated. Because if you don't have to state it, if you can assume it, if it goes without saying, what does that apply to? Only the most certain things in life. They go without saying, so nobody has to say them because everybody knows they're true. And so when when Laban does not say to Jacob, you have done something outrageous, he doesn't do that. 
He just assumes it. How? By acting outraged. You see, he's saying it goes without saying. Well, that outrage is not evidence, but he's wanting to use it as a substitute for evidence. It happens all the time in our society today. Outrage is used as a substitute for evidence, but outrage is not evidence. Outrage proves nothing. It doesn't even prove to us that the person outraged is really outraged. They're just acting outraged. And then wanting everybody to conclude that the person they're outraged at must have done something outrageous, must have done something wrong. The second rhetorical trick we see Laban using is the use of victimhood, acting as though his daughters and their children are the victims of Jacob, while Laban is their champion. Every tyrant in history has come to power in this way. There's a victim group. Or maybe it's all of society, but there's a victim group. The tyrant is the champion. Come to bring social justice. That's the way every tyrant has ever gotten in power. All of this is false. Laban presents no evidence that his daughters are victims of Jacob. Again, he just assumes it, he poses, he postures, and he acts outraged. The truth, in fact, is exactly the opposite. To the extent his daughters are victims, it's from Laban himself. And Jacob is their champion, getting them away. Third rhetorical trick we see here. Laban seeks to prove that he is a kind and virtuous man by saying what he would have done if he had been given the chance. He's trying to prove he's a kind and virtuous man by saying the kind and virtuous things that he would have done if given the chance. Verses 27. Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. Now Jesus encountered this very logic when the scribes and Pharisees said to him, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would, have not, we would not have killed the prophets with them. You notice the logic. You know we are virtuous people today because of the virtue we say we would have done in the past had we lived then. Jesus says the logic is is actually exactly the opposite of that. We do not know who you are today by who you say you would have been in the past. We do not know the nature of your acts today by what you say you would have done in the past. Rather, we know what you would have done and who you would have been in the past by what you do today and who we see you are today. Jesus says to them, I'm sending you prophets, and what are you going to do? Persecute, scourge, kill, and crucify them, Matthew 23, 34. And so Jesus is saying, if you persecute and kill the prophets today, we know for certain you would have done so 
in the past. That's the way it worked. Now, how does this show up in our society today? A lot of different ways, because we're in a virtue-signaling society, which is to say we're in a society full of hypocrisy. And one of the, fav- one of the cheapest, easiest, and yet most effective ways to virtue-signal is to virtue-signal vicariously from the past doing exactly what Laban is trying to do here, doing exactly what the scribes and Pharisees tried to do in Jesus' day. How many people today justify the right to kill the unborn by making the exact same arguments that were used to justify slavery a couple of hundred years ago? What is that argument? They are not a person within the meaning of the Constitution. They are a non-person, therefore they have no constitutional right to life or liberty. And they do this while wrapping themselves in the righteous robes of the anti-slavery champions of the past. What they're trying to say is, we would have been there with those anti-slavery champions of the past, and by that you know that we are virtuous today. Jesus says, no, You make today the exact same arguments that were used to justify slavery then. Therefore, we know for a fact that you would have been making the exact same arguments in that day. So, we come back into our text here. Laban pursued Jacob in his household, seeking to harm Jacob and to forcefully take his daughters and grandchildren back to his place in Haran. Verse 29, It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good or bad. That tells us, this tells us who Laban really is. What he's actually doing in the present. And that, in turn, tells us what Laban would have done had Jacob notified him that he was intending to leave. He would have harmed Jacob. He would have kept Rachel and Leah and their children captive. Saying that he would have sent them off with joy and songs is nonsense. This is exactly why his daughters did not want to kiss Laban goodbye. They did not want him kissing their children goodbye. They just wanted to leave as soon as possible. And so we see in all of this that from Laban's perspective, words are not actually for truth. Words are not for truth. Words are not for blessing. Words are not for loving someone. For him, words are merely tools. Words are to achieve a certain effect, a certain outcome. Words are for effect and advantage. And then we see finally Laban shifting to another accusation in verse 30. Why did you steal my gods? Well, unlike Laban, Jacob answers truthfully and with a very open-heartedness, which Laban, frankly, does not deserve. Jacob also responds very open-handedly to Laban's charge of theft. And what you see from this spirit of Jacob is that he's very willing to submit himself to righteous judgment. Verses 31 and 32, Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid. In other words, why didn't I tell you I was leading? Very honest, because I was afraid. 
because I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force, which is exactly what he would have done. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In other words, if we've taken anything, you search, find it. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know Rachel had stolen the idols. Now Jesus teaches us that in this world, in many settings, we basically are like sheep among wolves. And therefore, he tells us in engaging with wolves, we have to accomplish two things in the way that we speak and interact with them. Number one, we need to be as innocent as doves. Number two, we need to be as wise or as cunning or shrewd as serpents. Now, those to us seem to be opposites. There seems to be there's no way you can be both of those at the same time. But Jesus says... Yes, you can, and yes, you should. And the best example of someone who was both of these at the same time is Jesus himself. Jesus was always as innocent as a dove, but he also could be as cunning and as slippery as a serpent when he was dealing with wolves. Proverbs says that when dealing with fools, we should not just answer them, however... We certainly shouldn't imitate all of their dirty rhetorical tricks or their spirit because that just makes them like, makes us like them. On the other hand, we should not just answer them naively in a way that sets them up to better manipulate and obfuscate the truth. Jesus says that we should seek to respond to a fool in a way that exposes his folly and that takes him down off of his high horse. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And Jesus was the absolute master of doing that. You read it throughout the Gospels. Finally, the religious leaders stopped trying to trap him in his words because every single time he turned the tables on them and they were the ones who were left looking foolish. And we will see Jacob start to move in that direction in just a minute. Meantime, Laban searches for his gods. He searches thoroughly, exhaustively, extensively, making everybody wait in the meantime. And the entire time he's searching, Rachel is sitting on top of his gods. Laban went into Jacob's tent, verse 33, into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot arise before you, for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. Now, not to be uh, crude here, but think about the picture that God is painting. Menstruating Rachel is sitting on top of Laban's gods who are helpless 
to free themselves, while Laban vainly seeks to find and rescue them. When your gods need you to rescue them, that's a good sign your gods are phony. And phony is not the same thing as fake. For Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.20 that lurking behind all of the pagan idols are real demonic powers. So they're not fake in that sense, but they are phony because they are not the one true God, creator, sustainer, and redeemer of all things, the only one worthy of worship. And if your gods need you to deliver them, that means they cannot deliver you. All of this is a wake-up call to Laban. All of this is a shout for Laban to get a clue. Laban, pay attention to what is happening. But he doesn't get it. Such is the power of unbelief. Because the truth is, those who were locked in their fallenness and unbelief prefer some sort of a higher power who they can bribe, who they can cut a deal with, who they can work some angles with. And that is not the true and living God. Only God is sufficient to break the power of unbelief. Jesus tells us in Luke 16, 30 and 31 that no miracle, not even raising somebody from the dead, is sufficient to free someone from unbelief other than the miracle of the Holy Spirit working faith within them. That is the only thing that can break someone free from the shackles in the cell of unbelief. Well, after this long search to which... Uh, Laban has subjected uh, Jacob and his household while they all wait. Jacob speaks again, and this time he tells Laban the truth he deserves to hear and needs to hear. And in this speech, we learn all sorts of details we've never heard of before that show the depth of the loyalty of Jacob's service to Laban and Laban's constant taking advantage and afflicting Jacob, things we never knew before. Verses 36 to 42. Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? You see, part of God keeping Laban from finding the idols is God showing his victory over the idols. He says, take anything you found, set it here before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats I have not miscarried. They're young. I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Now, this was contrary to the rule and custom of the day concerning shepherds. If a sheep was torn by beasts in the middle of the night, that did not come out of whatever the shepherd's wage was supposed to be. And of course, here, Jacob is not even receiving a wage because of the way uh, Laban has manipulated him. 
There I was in the day the drought consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. Constantly Laban was shifting his wages away from what they had agreed to something more advantageous to Laban. And here's the bottom line. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed, which means not only without pay, but without his wives and his children. He would have allowed Jacob to leave, yes, but he would have left, he would have left the way he came with his staff in his hand, and that's it. God has seen my affliction, says Jacob, and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then in verses 43 to 50, Laban replies with more self-righteous posturing and false innuendos. Laban answered and said to Jacob, these daughters, notice his attitude, these daughters are my daughters, these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All you see is mine. So do you think he would have sent Jacob off with song and dances and timbrel and harp with his daughters and his grandchildren? He would have not sent him off with anything. But then he says, but what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born? In other words, it is only your God threatening me that is keeping me from doing what true righteousness and justice would dictate, making it absolutely clear what Laban's intentions were. Verse 44, now Laban shifts to seeking a covenant with Jacob. Come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Continuing to verse 45, so Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jehar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Now, both of those words mean heap of witness, a pile of stones that is a witness. Laban's term is Aramaic. Jacob's term is Hebrew. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid, also Mizpah. Because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we were absent from one another. Now listen, here here comes the rhetorical tricks again. If you afflict my daughters, if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is a witness between you and me. Now this is a master class in the underhanded tricks of unbelieving rhetoric. What is assumed throughout? Jacob is the kind of guy who needs watching because he cannot be trusted. That's totally false. It's the opposite of the truth. Laban is the kind of guy who needs watching because he cannot be trusted. The real reason Laban wants this covenant is that he is starting to realize that God is making Jacob more powerful than he is, and he's starting to be afraid. He's starting to fear Jacob. So Laban wants the protection of a covenant. But Laban dresses it all up in a lie. He says he needs to protect his daughters. This is not about me. This is about my daughters. This is about my grandchildren. 
And notice what he warns against. He said, i got to make sure you don't take any other wives besides my daughters or otherwise mistreat them. Now keep in mind who this is. This is Laban who personally saw to it that his daughters would have to share their husband with other wives, namely one another. This is Laban, whom his daughters were so anxious to get away from that they didn't even want to say goodbye. This is Laban, whom Yahweh God commanded Jacob to leave and get away from. But Jacob, you see, he is not a petty put-on like Laban. So he agrees to the covenant in spite of Laban's self-righteous posturing. After all, Jacob does obtain something valuable in it. Verse 51, Laban said to Jacob, Here is this heap, and here is this pillar which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness. This pillar is a witness. I will not pass beyond this heap to you. You will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judged between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. Now as we come to a conclusion... I just want to note that in the Exodus pattern, while God always ultimately, it may take a long time, but he always ultimately defeats evil rulers who afflict his people, he does so in different ways. In the book of Exodus, God literally drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. Here, God's victory takes the form of Laban capitulating because God has made it clear to him that he is beaten. And so Laban seeks a covenant with Jacob. Other times, God defeats the evil ruler by converting them to faith and repentance toward the one true God. For example, in Genesis 47, Jacob is going to go down to Egypt to avoid another famine. Joseph is there who is the ruler right underneath Pharaoh, And Joseph is going to bring uh, Jacob to meet Pharaoh. And when he does so, Pharaoh seeks a blessing from Jacob. Jacob, who is a shepherd, shepherds who are an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that it is always the greater who blesses the lesser. By seeking a blessing from Jacob, Pharaoh was acknowledging that this shepherd, Jacob, was his superior. It was his better, which makes it very clear all of these things are signs of faith and conversion in Joseph's Pharaoh. There's no way he's going to do these things apart from faith in the true and living God. In Daniel, in chapter 4, we will read of the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he was a tough knot. God had to take his sanity away for seven years and then bring it back to him to break him down, to bring him to faith and repentance. But part of the book of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar's own confession to the true and living God, and it serves as a kind of prototype 
of the faith and confession that we should hear from every single ruler across the faith of the earth. So God always accomplishes his victory over time, but his means of victory is up to him. It's up to his wisdom and up to his providence. This is why God tells us in the New Testament, the way we seek to put this into practice is through praying in a certain way. 1 Timothy chapter 2. It can be very confusing as we live in our own day and we deal with various rulers. It's hard to tell who is righteous, who is not. Sometimes you're dealing with various shades of gray and most of those shades are more toward dark gray and trying to decide who we should support, who we should vote for, how should we pray. Well, 1 Timothy chapter 2 gives us the bottom line, the baseline, the minimum. And this is speaking in the context here of the worship service. I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. And what exactly are we praying for? Even if we can't tell to, with a real peace who we should be supporting or who we should be advocating for or who we should be voting for, we know that we're doing the will of God when we pray this because God tells us so. That we might lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. In other words, we're not afflicted, we're not persecuted, we're not harassed. We're able to reverence. That means we're able to worship God openly in all godliness. That means we're able to openly live out the Christian life in front of others, which means witnessing to others. We're able to do those openly and freely and without harassment. And then he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is in keeping with the Great Commission and Christ's design that all nations one day, self-consciously and with sincerity, are his disciples from front to back, side to side, and top to bottom. And then he concludes, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus. This is how we do our part in the Exodus pattern that is happening all around us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.